Psalm 137, beginning at verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing to us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cry. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. These are heavy words that we read here in Psalm 137. Very sobering words. So with that in mind, let's commit ourselves to God, seeking his guidance as well. We pray that he will speak to us today through his word. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that your word is eternal, is timeless, and is of immense beauty. And Lord, is deserving of all praise. Lord, help us understand these words. Father, may you speak to us now clearly through your word. Lord, help us to understand it in its right context. And may it help us point us to Jesus, the one who is our eternal king. Lord, help us in our weakness, now we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The largest temple in the world today is Angkor Wat. It's a Buddhist temple in Cambodia that covers an area of 1,626 kilometers squared. And it's an important pilgrimage site for any Cambodian and any Buddhist today. Now, the name Angkor Wat is translated as the temple city, or the city of temples. And such a spectacle is visited by roughly 2.6 million people a year. 2.6 million. And not only that, it is actively preserved by the nations of France, Japan, China, Germany, and many other countries. Now, Angkor Wat is revered by many around the world. But imagine that there was a temple that wasn't so much revered. Not just a temple, but a temple city. A city that was despised and mocked by other nations. A temple city that meets its destruction and those who once belonged to it, they find themselves in a place they don't want to be. I wonder, have you ever had that feeling yourself? That existential feeling that you don't fit in here. You don't belong here. There is something more than just what is around you. And in the middle of the pain and suffering of this life, you just wish that you could be somewhere that you belong. That place of comfort, that place of peace, of joy, of freedom. Whether it's your happy place, or it's being with that special someone, or even just doing what you love doing. But these things are kept from you. You have no way to get near them. And such echoes are not isolated just within our time. 
In fact, these echoes are felt here too in Psalm 137. This psalm is most closely related in terms of exile to Babylon in the 6th century BC. And this is something we actually looked at last Sunday. As we both heard in 2 Kings chapter 21 read out aloud. And heard why the prayer of Moses is so relevant to the exiles in Psalm 90. But whether Psalm 137 was written just after or during the exile, we don't know. But what we do know in its past reflection is that, as Derek Kidner puts it, every line of it is alive with pain. And so we will dip in and out of the context of this psalm as we walk through its emotional tones. And there are three emotions that we discover the psalmist experience in, in these verses. Verses 1 to 3, we see sorrow. Verses 4 to 6, we see pain and despair. And in verses 7 to 9, we see anger. And as you can tell from these three descriptors, God's people are in agony. And the reason for this is because they're both isolated from their happy place and they're reminded in tasteless humor of it. And the only way we can rightfully understand this agony and try and see the bigger picture is if we jump right into it. So let's just work our way through the psalm as we think about our first point, and that is sorrow. Now I'm sure some of you, if not many of you, know the opening words in verse 1 through Boney M song, The Rivers of Babylon, don't you? I'm not going to sing. Um, I'll spare you the, the pain of that. <laughs> but the song paints a very different tone compared to the reality of the situation we find ourselves here in verses 1 to 3. Now, maybe you've done this, but personally, I've never sat and cried whilst listening to a Caribbean calypso tune. But look at verse 1 with me here. Here in verse 1, we have the reason for tears. At the end of verse 1, we see it's a remembrance of Zion. Now, this remembrance is caused in verse 3 by the mocking of the captor, of the enemy, the tormentor. As they demand songs of joy, and they say... In verse 3, sing to us one of the songs of Zion. But there's no joy in this situation. Instead, there's a picture of sorrow that we have here. Sorrow that causes the musicians to forego their joyful pastimes and hang up their instruments to retirement in verse 2. The reason for this is, what's the point in playing? Now these songs of Zion... These are songs that we find and read and sing for ourselves in the Psalms. And um, Gillian actually, thankfully, just read one to us earlier on. These Psalms are Psalm 46, Psalm 48, Psalm 76, Psalm 84, Psalm 87, and Psalm 122. But why would the captors want to torment the people by putting in a song request? Now, people don't do this anymore, but imagine you were listening to the radio before Spotify ever existed. And you um, sent in your favorite song request to the DJ. And when the DJ hears that song, he breaks down in tears because it reminds him of his past love. Now, this is not an accidental torment that you've caused upon somebody. This is not general banter either. This is deliberate mockery of the known holy city in the ancient world where the God of Israel and of Judah would dwell on earth with his people. And such a place was cherished by the, by the people in their music. In Psalm 46, 
Zion is the holy city of God. And God is the people's refuge and strength. He's an ever-present help. God is in this city. Psalm 76 verse 2 tells us his dwelling place is in Zion. Psalm 46 verse 5, she will not fall. Psalm 87 verse 2, the, love, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwellings of Jacob. And nothing will ever breach Zion's walls. Because God who ceases wars, the God who breaks the enemy's bows and spears, he in Psalm 46 is their fortress. But we fast forward to the scene to Psalm 137 here. And in Ezekiel chapter 10, it tells us that God's glory leaves the temple. He's no longer in Jerusalem. Jerusalem can no longer be called Zion. The reason for this is despite the multiple warnings from the prophets, in Ezekiel 33, a man escapes Jerusalem. He says to the exiled prophet in verse 21, now Ezekiel at this point was already taken captive when we meet him in chapter 1. But in chapter 33, verse 21, it tells us the city has fallen. And so whenever the city fell, such taunting from the enemy here in Psalm 137, it evokes these bitter memories once again. But these memories aren't because God is unfaithful. But rather the context of Ezekiel and the context of um, 2 Kings chapter 21. The context of Psalm 137. And the reason why these people are here is because God's people were unfaithful. They were warned multiple times. They were told to repent, but they refused. And in return, they caused their own sadness, their own pain, their own sorrow. The sorrow here in verses 1 to 3 is a longing of the place they once knew. The city they loved so well. But now it's gone. And they're a million miles away from its refuge. And a million miles away from God. And such sorrow can only lead to pain and despair. Something we see in our next point here in verses 4 to 6. And there's nothing worse than when you feel unable to do something or anything. That feeling is paralyzing. And the very thought of doing it is so unfathomable that you begin to feel sick in your stomach. And despair never hits us the way that we imagine it or the way that we would like it to. Look at verse 4 with me. Verse 4 says, How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? The simple answer is this. We just can't. There's no way. The people are so distraught that it's impossible for them to even consider it. Outlaw, country singer and songwriter, Blaise Foley. Um, he, was, he lost his passion for writing music. As it says, whenever he lost his muse. In a bar one night, someone requested that he should sing the first song he ever wrote. Blaise Foley said these words. I wouldn't even sing that song to myself in the dark. Now the requester asked, who was it about? Blaze said this. It was about living in a tree house. I live with a half black Jewish girl. 
It was called living in the woods in a tree. Now comparing the love of a troubled country singer to a group of people living in exile might be unimaginable to you people here in London. I get that. But in the exile period of God's people, such motivation here is impossible. They miss Jerusalem. Look at verses 5 to 6 here with me. If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Jerusalem cannot be enjoyed because it's gone. It cannot be remembered fondly. But the memories in themselves bring pain if they end up leading you to a place of grief that hasn't been fully processed yet. And for the exile here, they aren't just removed from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is gone. Their highest joy is completely taken away from them. So what now? Well, you know the old saying, don't you? You don't know what you've got until it's gone. But maybe it's more a case of you knew exactly what you had, but you didn't appreciate it enough. You took it for granted. You thought it was never going to leave you. And here's the problem. We place too much of ourselves and our hearts into the wrong things. Now, even though they could be good things, they are still wrong things. Especially if they both don't lead us to the one who gave us these good gifts in the first place, or they drag us away from him. And what happens whenever our highest joy is taken away from us? How do we respond? Do our mouths dry up in anguish? Or do they froth in embittered rage? Sometimes our highest joy can be considered good and noble. Our jobs, our careers, our families, our homes. But if these things are our highest joy, then we have simply forgotten our chief joy. As the Westminster Catechism puts it, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God gives us his good gifts so that we can know the giver of these good gifts. But these gifts can be given or can be taken away. And our danger is that whenever these gifts are taken from us, either by force or corruption of a broken sinful world that causes death, suffering, fragility, and everything we say or do, we lose sight of the one who gives us these things. And for the people of Israel, they lost Jerusalem because they neglected God. And this is a warning. But the warning for us isn't to neglect, otherwise you might lose something you treasure. Instead, we must treasure the one who has given us all things and is eternally stable and secure. Otherwise, we could fall into despair over something we never had a hold over. The things you have now, they could be gone tomorrow. And that's a hard reality for us to face. In fact, some of us have already faced that. Some of us are facing this right now. And it's one thing for us to despair and to feel pain whenever we lose something. So what's the right response to this? Well, let's see how the exile respond in verses 7 to 9 in anger. And before we begin 
looking at this section and seeing the heart of the people's response. Let me do my best to clear some things up here. Anger is not always simple. There can be simple anger, but there is also righteous anger. Now, simple anger comes from a place of selfishness. It happens whenever our pride is slighted and we think that the world simply revolves around us. It says in James chapter 1, verse 20, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And the reason for this, as John Bloom says, is because the anger of man is more concerned with them himself rather than God. But righteous anger is different. Righteous anger comes from a person who not only governs with justice, but seeks justice to be fulfilled. And what I mean here is that I'm talking about a God who is fundamentally righteous in all of his ways. And all of his ways are in perfect proportion, consistency and harmony. And therefore he is able to execute justice because he is the bar by which righteousness is measured by. And God's righteous anger is directed towards those who prefer his goodness. This perversion is evil or wickedness or sin. And this evil comes in Psalm 137 through the actions called out by the writer in verse 7 as they cry out to God, pleading with him to remember what the Edomites did. And the minor prophet Obadiah, he brings God's judgment of Edom's wickedness and evil. They rejoice in the destruction of Jerusalem. We see that here in verse 7. But not only did they rejoice, but they also took part in that evil. That evil that perverts God's goodness. They've enslaved God's people. They've oppressed God's people in hardship. They've rejected God. They've become secure in themselves. And they've conspired with the Babylonians. And so in verse 15... Obadiah says this. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done it, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. In other words, justice is coming for them. God does not allow his name to be mocked without repercussion. And as we see in the passage here, it's not just the Edomites who will face judgment. But look at verses 8 to 9 with me. And we see that Babylon is being brought into the equation as well. Now, verses 8 to 9, they've been difficult verses to interpret, I'll be honest. And many theologians, including C.S. Lewis, um, Robbie's favorite scholar, um, Meredith Klein, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, they have all come up with different possible motives. But their answers, unfortunately, distance the words of this psalm and the other psalms that speak of despair and judgment from us today. But these words are for us. Even though they might seem foreign or unspeakable to you. Charles Spurgeon says this about Psalm 137 to help us understand it. Spurgeon says this. Let those who find fault with it have never, have never seen their temple burn, their city destroyed, their wives ravished and their children slain. They might not perhaps be quite so velvet-mouthed if they had suffered after this fashion. You see here in verses 8 to 9, the psalmist is not crying out for vengeance based upon his own demise. 
The psalmist is not crying out for vengeance because he is seeking his, his selfish anger to be fulfilled. But look at verses 8 to 9 with me. He cries out twice for the one who will repay those enemies. Verse 8, happy is the one who repays you. Verse 9, happy is the one. This one is the one who will bring vengeance. On the 22nd of April, 1979, Smadr Haran hid in a crawl space with her infant child. Whilst her husband and daughter were executed on the shores of Nahariah in North Israel by Palestinian terrorists. Now the child didn't make it either. The baby was accidentally suffocated in an attempt to muffle the screaming. In 2003, Smatter gave her, or sorry, 2008, Smatter gave her story to the Washington Post, which is published with this heading here. The world should know what he did to my family. Now put yourself in the shoes of Smatter Haran here. A man has came and has taken everything from you. If you're in her position, what kind of anger would you feel? I think it's appropriate to suggest that the anger here is somewhat righteous, as you'd want to see justice carried out for this lady here. And throughout the Old Testament, God promises both the repayment of curses or suffering caused by a forcing, opposing forces and vengeance. He promises this, this repayment as justice. Psalm chapter 12, verse 30, it says, He who curses you, I will curse. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, it says, God says to his people, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And because of these promises, it's appropriate that we should find something like this in verses 8 to 9. In Isaiah chapter 13, God brings a word of judgment to the Babylonians with this warning. He says this to the Babylonians, See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and a fierce anger. And down in verse 16, God gives this promise to the Babylonians. Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Hosea chapter 13, verse 16, it says the same thing. And it says the same thing in Nahum chapter 3, verse 10. But the question I have is this. Do you think Jesus would ever speak like this? Didn't Jesus tell us to love our enemies? Is this not just the God of the Old Testament being angry and wrathful and moaning? But the God of the New Testament is a God of love. Well, like his character, God is constant in judgment. In Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44, Jesus looks at the city of Jerusalem roughly 500 years after this psalm was written. Jerusalem since then have been rebuilt. But they still rejected God. And Jesus says this to them. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another 
because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. In Psalm 137, the people wept because they missed the city of Jerusalem, that city of Zion that they lost. But on the arrival of Jesus, the fulfillment of Zion, the fulfillment of Jerusalem, the people still failed to see its true rebuilding. Their highest joy was once again replaced by what should have been their chief joy. And under the old covenant, these psalms are not just used against any enemy, but only those who are flagrantly and impenitentially evil in their actions against God's people. God always allows space for these um, prayers to be answered by the enemies being redeemed despite judgment because of God's grace. But he redeems his enemies by grace in the same way that he has redeemed us. God in Christ came to Jerusalem and he proclaimed this judgment, but that judgment did not come for 40 years. In between then and that judgment, there was still time for people to repent. And for those who put their trust in Christ, for those who repented, for those who made him their chief joy, judgment was paid for by him. And in return, Zion, Jerusalem, is now foreshadowed by the church. More specifically, Zion, Jerusalem, is foreshadowed by the local church. It is here in the local church that, again, these extreme acts of persecution can and will happen. And they have happened in the past. They are happening in the world around us. But just as God's judgment towards his people is characterized as we love those who persecute us, so too is God's extreme love towards his people's extreme persecution is met with justice. So where does this leave us today? How can we pray this psalm here in 2022? Now, it's one thing to think of those who are suffering in persecution for their faith around the world in places like Pakistan, North Korea, the Middle East, Nigeria, and many other places. And it's right that we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. We are to weep with those who weep. We are to mourn with those who mourn. We are to share in the afflictions as we lift them up in prayer. But what about here? Are we immune to pain and suffering here in the West? Of course not. We all suffer because none of us live in a perfect world or a perfect society. The opposition we face will appear different. But make no mistake, this is still not of God. When we suffer, whether it's sickness, false accusations, insecurity, hardships we just can't get over, constant unpaid bills coming in through the door, The frustration of feeling like you're getting a little further ahead only to be knocked back down. The breakdown of relationships, romantically or in family and friends. You see, suffering hits us in so many different ways. And not many of these things happen because of sin, but because of the brokenness of living in a sinful world. Our enemy and God's enemy, Satan, he still manipulates his words to tempt us to believe that when we suffer, that when we struggle, it's because God isn't good. It's because he has no right to be our highest joy, our chief joy. It's because he's not worthy. He's not worth pursuing. And so what happens? 
We start to doubt. We go beyond doubt into despair, into sorrow, into anger. So where's our hope? Elizabeth Elliot says this. If your faith rests on your idea of how God is supposed to answer your prayers, then that kind of faith is very shaky and bound to be demolished when the storms of life hit it. But if your faith rests on the character of him who is the eternal I am, then that kind of faith is rugged and will endure. You see, our hope is in the one who executes his righteous judgment and his righteous wrath that's wrapped in love and empathy for those who know him. Although we too were once God's enemies, the cross gives us peace with him. For while we were still sinners, while we were still at war with God, Christ Jesus died for us so that we can be reconciled with God. But furthermore, in Revelation, we have a picture of God's people suffering at the hands of God's enemy. But at the end, justice wins. God's people are not left behind either. Listen to what it says in Revelation chapter 21. It says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no mourning or death or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb is its lamp. This Lamb is the one who sacrifices himself for us. Early in Revelation, John sees that the Lamb is Jesus, the one who took on our judgment of sin. And he is now handed all authority to judge himself. If you believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. If you believe that he is the son of God who came to die for your sin. And if you believe in him then you are no longer under God's judgment. You are free. You are free from the enemy that's sin. You are free from the enemy that's death. You are safe and furthermore you will one day enjoy the glory of the new temple city where Jesus is the temple himself just as he said he would be to the chief priests in John chapter 2. So even though we have this shocking scene here in Psalm 137, we know that this is not the end. One day God's judgment will come for those who are against him. But for those who trust in him, Those who set him as their highest joy, their expectations will not just be met, but they will be blown away by the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is the beginning and the end. He is the eternal I am, who helps us to endure in every season, no matter what. We know that he will execute judgment on Satan and his people. And he gives us the confidence to know that this isn't the end right now. Your situation is not how things are going to finish. It's going to get better. And yes, it's hard now. 
And although it's hard, we will seek to comfort each other through this. We will lift each other up in prayer with our grievances, with our pain, with our brokenness. But we do so with confidence. Because the one who executes perfect justice will execute perfect love on his people. And one day, there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more despair or pain. There will be no more need to be angry. To pray this psalm, knowing that your enemy is God's enemy. And that he, his death, has lost its sting. Satan knows his fate. His head has been crushed already. And sin has been paid for in full. Because in the end, Jesus, the risen, conquering lamb that was slain, our God, our temple, our saviour, our rock and our redeemer, Jesus, our highest joy, wins.